Hello, everyone, and welcome to the April 1st edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. More than 1,000 lawsuits have been filed accusing Purdue Pharma and other opioid manufacturers of using deceptive practices to market addictive drugs. The cases are consolidated in an Ohio federal courtroom. And one of them, Oklahoma versus Purdue Pharma, was scheduled for trial in May in Norman, Oklahoma. The Oklahoma trial was expected to presage many of the arguments the jury may be presented in the national case, the next one set for trial in the fall of 2019, and others being scheduled for trial out of the thousands or so that are in process. Purdue Pharma was exploring filing for bankruptcy to address potentially significant liabilities from the lawsuits. But in an unexpected turn of events, the Oklahoma Attorney General just announced a historic settlement with Purdue Pharma that will establish a nearly $200 million endowment at the Oklahoma State University's Center for Wellness and Recovery. The money will go toward treating the ongoing addiction epidemic nationwide. The endowment provides funding for an entity that will receive the initial $102.5 million and next January it will receive an annual $15 million payment over a five-year period. During the same five-year time frame, it will receive ongoing contributions of addiction treatment medicine valued at $20 million. The trial against Johnson & Johnson Tiva and other defendants in the Oklahoma case named in the state's lawsuit remain on track for trial on May 28. The progression of this first case will have much industry attention, especially to discover if these other defendants will settle or push the case to trial, and if pushed to trial what the jury will do after hearing the evidence. The Ohio Attorney General recently sued to recover nearly $16 million in prescription overcharges to the state for the cost of prescription drugs negotiated by its Pharmacy Benefits Managers, or PBM. Now there's a second state investigating Pharmacy Benefit Managers seeking to discover if it has a basis to file litigation as well. The Kentucky Attorney General has launched an investigation into allegations that its pharmacy benefit managers have overcharged the state health insurance programs for prescription drugs and discriminated against independent pharmacies. He is seeking details on how the PBMs hired by state Medicaid managed care organizations and the state employee health plan have determined, billed, and paid drug reimbursement rates over the past five years in Kentucky. A new state report indicated two PBMs took in $123.5 million last year from the state Medicaid program by paying pharmacies a lower rate to fill prescriptions while charging the state more for the same drugs. The Attorney General said he is investigating PBMs because he wants to identify and recover any profits improperly retained at the expense of the Commonwealth and its taxpayers. And now our crime report. South Bay QME, Dr. Venkat Achaki, 
that's AACHI, pleaded guilty to distributing hydrocodone outside the scope of his professional practice and without a legitimate medical need and to health care fraud. The DWC lists Dr. Achi as a QME in physical medicine and rehabilitation with offices in Campbell and San Jose, California. Prosecutors con- contend that Achi submitted a false and fraudulent claim for payments for health care benefits, items, and services to an insurance company. Achi operated a pain clinic in San Jose and maintained a DEA registration number authorizing him to prescribe controlled substances. Dr. Achi admitted that he wrote hydrocodone, acetaminophen prescriptions that were outside the scope of his professional practice and not for a legitimate medical purpose. The plea agreement describes transactions in which Achi improperly distributed hydrocodone. For example, in 2017, he wrote a prescription enabling a patient to receive 90 hydrocodone acetaminophen pills, but did not conduct a physical examination of the patient, nor discuss the patient's pain or response to prior medication. Achi acknowledged that he knew the prescriptions were not for a legitimate medical purpose, and that he did not write the prescriptions in the usual course of his professional practice. Further, Achi admitted that in 2018 he falsely submitted a false and fraudulent claim for payment with the intent to defraud an insurance company. In late 2018, a federal grand jury indicted Achi and charged him with several counts of various federal statutes. Achi pleaded guilty to one count under each statute. He remains free on bail pending sentencing this July when he faces a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison and a fine of a million dollars for the illegal distribution of hydrocodone count and 10 years in prison and a $250,000 fine for the health care fraud count. 36-year-old John Michael Heron II of Stockton pleaded guilty to mail fraud and aggravated identity theft in connection with an unemployment benefits fraud and identity theft scheme. Court documents show that Heron participated in a scheme to defraud the Employment Development Department by filing fraudulent claims. He and his co-defendant, Robert Maher, created fictitious companies and fictitious employees by using the real identities of persons with and without their knowledge and filed claims with the EDD falsely stating that the employees had been laid off or fired. The unemployment benefits were deposited onto debit cards that were mailed to addresses controlled by Heron, Maher, or other associates. Heron was connected to approximately a half million dollars in fraudulent claims to the EDD. He is scheduled to be sentenced on July 2nd when he faces a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison and a $250,000 fine for the mail fraud count and a mandatory two-year consecutive sentence and $250,000 fine for the aggravated identity theft count. And in regulatory news, the Department of Health and Human Services released an additional $487 million to supplement first-year funding through its state opioid response grant program. The awards to states and territories are part of the HHS five-point opioid strategy to combat the opioid crisis. 
Together with the second year continuation awards to be provided later this year, the total amount of grants to states this year is more than $1.4 billion. This funding will expand access to treatment that works, especially to medication-assisted treatment with approved social supports. The state opioid response grants aim to increase access to the three Food and Drug Administration-approved medications for the treatment of opioid use disorder. Other funding, including $50 million for tribal communities under the Tribal Opioid Response Grant Program, has been awarded separately. Cal OSHA has issued serious health and safety citations to underground construction company Incorporated of Benicia after two of its employees contracted valley fever. The workers were exposed to the fungal disease while using hand tools to dig trenches in Kings, Fresno, and Merced counties, areas where the soil is known to contain harmful spores that cause the infection. Kalosha was notified in 2018 that the employees were hospitalized after being diagnosed with valley fever, also known as coccidiodomycosis. Symptoms of the disease are similar to the flu and include fatigue, shortness of breath, and fever. Severe cases can cause serious lung problems. The workers were tasked with digging trenches up to five and a half feet deep to allow access to gas pipelines for maintenance. Dust was not controlled and the workers did not wear any respiratory protection. Exposure to the disease could have occurred in any one of the three counties where the fungal spores are known to be endemic. Since 2017, Cal OSHA has cited 12 businesses for work-related valley fever. Valley fever is caused by a microscopic fungus which lives in the top 2 to 12 inches of soil in many parts of the state. When soil is disrupted by digging, driving, or high winds, fungal spores can become airborne and may be inhaled by workers who are not protected. While the fungal spores are most likely to be present in the soils of the Central Valley, they may also be present in other areas of California. Cal OSHA's Valley Fever informational page provides detailed information, including resources for workers and employers. Cal OSHA's Consultation Services branch provides free and voluntary assistance to employers to improve their health and safety programs. The DWC has adjusted the hospital outpatient departments and ambulatory surgical centers section of the official medical fee schedule. The adjustments conform to changes in the Medicare payment system as required by the Labor Code. The order adopting the OMFS adjustments is effective for services rendered on or after April 1, 2019 and is posted on the DWC website. The Workers' Compensation Research Institute has released an online version of its 2019 annual report. This report was distributed in hard copy at the Institute's recently held annual conference. The 2019 annual report takes a comprehensive look at all of the Institute's activities in 2018. It begins with a letter from the WCRI CEO who compares the Institute now with how it was 35 years ago. 
The report reviews the studies published in 2018, as well as a review of some of them, and where the research was used and shared. The report thanks WCIRI's members and friends for their support, which has enabled WCRI to produce independent, credible, and high-quality research on state workers' compensation systems for 35 years. And in medical news, while state lawmakers are rushing to legalize cannabis for various reasons, including so-called medical reasons, and courts are moving toward approving non-FDA-approved cannabis for treatment of workers' compensation pain management, the medical research is trailing these decisions. A good metaphor for this approach is fire-ready aim, since little is known about the relative harms of edible and inhalable cannabis products. And not all of the emerging medical literature is good news for cannabis users. A new study funded by the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment and published in the Annals of Internal Medicine documented a sharp rise in emergency room visits linked with marijuana following legalization in Colorado. One of the key drivers of the ER visits was a mysterious syndrome characterized by severe nausea and repeated vomiting. The study focused on a chart review of emergency room visits between 2012 and 2016 at a large urban academic hospital in Colorado. They found nearly 10,000 visits with an ICD-9-CM or ICD-10-CM code for cannabis use. Of these, over 2,500 visits were at least partially attributable to cannabis and 238 of them were related to edible cannabis. Very little is known about the condition. It's called cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, or CHS. Cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome can occur with cannabis use and is characterized by recurrent nausea, vomiting, and crampy abdominal pain. The pathogenesis of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is unclear, but it may involve alterations in the brain's regulation of the body's temperature. The prodromal phase of CHS is characterized by mild discomfort and nausea upon waking. Prior to the use of compensatory exposure to hot water to treat symptoms, people sometimes increase their intake of cannabinoids in an effort to treat the persistent nausea they experience. This prodromal phase can last for months or even years. The hypermetric phase is characterized by persistent nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and retching. Retching can occur up to 15 times per hour, and it is very difficult to take food or medicine by mouth during this stage, and patients may develop a fear of eating. Weight loss and dehydration due to decreased oral intake and vomiting are possible. Compensatory exposure to hot water, even for hours at a time, may be attempted for symptomatic release by these patients. This results in compulsive bathing and showering. People have described the hot water relief as temperature-dependent, meaning that hotter temperatures provide greater relief from these symptoms. 
It is during this phase that people with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome are likely to present to the emergency department of the hospital for treatment. Individual attacks can lead to complications such as acute kidney injury from dehydration due to persistent vomiting and hot showers. The Food and Drug Administration Commissioner called for tighter security of electronic health record systems as a result of thousands of reports of patient injuries and other safety problems over the past decade with these records. The Commissioner was responding to a report called Botched Operation, published this week by Kaiser Health Network and Fortune Magazine. The investigation found that the federal government has spent more than $36 billion over the past 10 years to switch doctors and hospitals from paper to digital record systems. In that time, electronic health records have created a host of risks to patient safety. Alarming reports of deaths, serious injuries, and near misses, thousands of them, have been tied to software glitches, user errors, or other system flaws. These reports have piled up for years in government and private repositories. Yet, no central database exists to compile and study these incidents to improve safety. One example is eClinicalWorks, one of the leading sellers of record-keeping software for physicians in America. It is currently used by 850,000 healthcare professionals in the U.S. It paid a $155 million settlement to the government over alleged false claims and kickbacks. One physician made tens of thousands of dollars to clients who promoted its product. Despite the record settlement, the company denies wrongdoing. Federal officials say the software can be misused to overcharge a practice known as upcoding. Some doctors and health systems are alleged to have overstated their use of the new technology, a potentially enormous fraud against Medicare and Medicaid, likely to take years to unravel. Two other software makers have paid a total of more than $200 million to settle fraud allegations. And proponents of electronic health records expected a seamless system so patients could share computerized medical histories in a flash with doctors and hospitals anywhere in the country. But that is yet to materialize, largely because officials allowed hundreds of competing firms to sell medical record software unable to exchange information with other systems. Many doctors say they spend half their day or more clicking pull-down menus and typing rather than interacting with patients. An emergency room doctor can be saddled with making up to 4,000 mouse clicks per shift. This has fueled concerns about doctor burnout, which in January the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Massachusetts Medical Society called a public health crisis. And entrenched policies continue to keep software failures out of public view. Vendors of electronic health records have imposed contractual gag clauses that discourage buyers from speaking out about safety issues and disastrous software installations. And some hospitals fight to withhold records from injured patients or their families. 
So that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian, Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.